make my ulcers feel better. <laughs> um, so, uh, just a couple quick announcements. I mentioned this last time. Something that I've decided to change with the, the class, so you guys know, there is a, a concert attendance requirement for the course, right? It's part of your grade, you have to attend a concert this semester. Um, but what I'm gonna do in, in place, or not in place of that, um, what, what'll be an option for you to do in place of that is to teach one of the portions of the course. So you would take one of, on the portfolios, you would take one of the projects, yeah. And then you would just teach that unit um, in fact, you get to sit in the captain's chair and you get to like screw around with everyone else's computers like oh. I've done the Oliver a couple times and Connor. <laughs> so um, anyway, so you get to teach the that section. <clears throat> um, like I told Ravel, Zen, you might kind of be interested in this. You can do a segment on FL, even though I know Ableton and FL are 100% the same, but I feel like they're similar enough. It just, it has to be beneficial to the rest of these knuckleheads as they're working on their portfolios, right? Showing them how to do these different things. Um, you could also do both if you want to do extra credit because I, I really, 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 really want to promote you guys going to the Rock, Pop, and Soul Ensemble concert, which is November 29th. November 29th, thank you. Come support your fellow students. We got Randolph, Rem Randolph, no. You used to be, didn't you? No. Oh, no? Yeah. Remington and Christy? That's it? All right, well, come support Remington and Christy. No. Oh, yeah. Wait, what do you play in, in the ensemble? Guitar? Really? One time. Oh, sorry. Well, I forgot about that. What's your name again? Uh, <laughs> are you in this class? All right. OK, so today, uh, I'm excited. We have a guest speaker. This is Darren Smith. No relation to Taylor Smith. <laughs> um, so he's going to present on, well actually I'll let you just kind of talk about what you're going to present on. And uh, I think that's it. So yeah, you right. Thanks. So I decided to spend the bulk of our three hour uh, time period together talking about the Me Too movement. So if we can all get out our textbooks. Oh my um, gotcha. Okay. So in case you were worried about fake news though, I am a real person. I have a website on the internet. So I exist in case you were worried. My name is Darren Smith. Um, I have a very varied background, which I'll share with you. Um, but first, I just wanted to say I'm very excited to be here. Doug, can I call you Doug in this class? I keep asking. Yeah, they always... Dougie Doug over worse. here yeah. um, asked me if I would come and do a guest lecture, and I got super excited right away because I love teaching, I love being in classrooms, and I love people that are striving and um, have the goal of being a creative in this world that we live in. So whether you want to be uh, doing notation or doing composition or doing film scoring or being in a band or being an artist or a dancer or a writer or a filmmaker like myself, that's what I'm talking about today, is kind of expanding out a little bit from probably what you're normally discussing in this room. But how many of you have aspirations to make a living as a creative professional? <laughs> Look at the number of hands, that's unanimous. Okay, class dismissed, just kidding. Okay. So that's what I was hoping for because what I wanna talk about are three principles that have been proven out in my life and in the life of friends of mine that I'm gonna talk about. Um, that I think will help you go from where you're at now to becoming somebody who can be a creative professional in this current landscape 
And by creative professional, I mean making $100,000 a year. That's a professional wage. Not eking by at 25, 30K, not living off ramen, not sharing a bedroom, but having a house, having a family, having cars, having money and savings, right? We're talking about being a legitimate creative professional as a career, right? It sounds fun, and it is fun. So first of all, I want to get to know you guys a little bit better so I can cater my comments a little bit more. Again, hi in the back. I'm Darren Smith. I'm a guest lecturer today. Surprise. Um, so how many of you, know, knowing that now the entire classroom wants to be a creative professional, how many of you have a very, very clear path to get there from where you sit right now in this classroom? Halfway, yo. Halfway. We got one halfway. Okay, so that's why I wanted to talk about this, because I remember sitting in the same class. I had a media lab class when I was in school about 10, 12 years ago, and sat there wondering, how do I go from right here learning how to do Pro Tools and notation in Sibelius to an actual career? At the time, I wanted to be uh, working as a film composer. That was my dream in 2000. Six and seven, my dream changed along the way, as I'll talk about. But that was the one thing that I wish I had a little bit more clarity on, was how do I get from A to B or A to D or A to Z, whatever distance that may be, what's the steps? What do I need to do now to prepare for that? And how do I make sure that I'm not going down the wrong path or a different path or a path that leads to somewhere which isn't where I wanted to go? Seem familiar to anybody? Okay, so I want to answer those questions. If I don't answer it in my lecture, I will stick around for as long as you want. I know you probably have classwork and stuff you'd rather do, but I'm here and I'll give you my contact info and I'm going to share a bunch of stuff with you guys because, I, again, I'm here to help and I love helping. So use me. Let's ask a lot of questions throughout and afterwards. So let me give you a little bit of background on me so you can kind of understand where I'm coming from and why I'm able to speak on this because if I was just some guy off the street, you'd probably be going... Well, why should I listen to him? What if he leads me astray? So let me give you a bit of background on me. Um, I've played music since I was about nine years old. I started playing saxophone. And the reason I got to play saxophone was in fourth grade. I went in, and the saxophone looked cooler than the clarinet. And so I, the teacher, there were about five of us that wanted to play the saxophone, but the school had only one saxophone. So the way that we figured out who got to play it was who could <laughs> blow the longest note on the mouthpiece. Not even the horn just the mouthpiece, and I eked it out by about twice as long as the next person. So I got to play saxophone. Um, I played saxophone from fourth grade all the way to after college. I still play occasionally. I don't gig anymore, but I played up until about five years ago. Um, I played in jazz bands. I started combo bands that were award-winning jazz bands. We played at the Sacramento Jazz Jubilee, which at the time was the nation's largest jazz festival. I started a youth combo band called Kickin' Jazz because it was made of myself and a whole bunch of soccer players that also played jazz music. So Kickin' Jazz was our name, and we played two years, my junior and senior year, and we won the award as the best youth band those two years. I went to Brigham Young University School of Music on a saxophone scholarship and quickly realized that I did not want to be a professional saxophone player my entire life. And also that despite being first chair and the leader of bands and all that throughout high school, I was actually not that great. And it required a lot more work than I was willing to put in for that dream. And that was the first time I really came in contact with this idea of, wait, I have to make a decision here. 
because up to that point, saxophone was just kind of laid before me. I was given lessons. I was put in bands. And it all just was easy. When I got to college, I was like, oh, man, I'm actually not that great. <laughs> so I played in bands in school, but I quickly uh, changed majors from a music major to a media music major and decided at that point I wanted to get into the technical side and the film composing because that's what I really loved. I love movies. I love music. I was like, that's, that's an easy, easy way to go. Um, from there, I didn't get that far because I, I realized I wasn't passionate about it. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about passion later, but at the moment, I just wasn't feeling it. Like, I would do my classes, and then I would go home, and I'd want to do something else. I'd want to record a friend on Pro Tools, or I'd want to go to a live show. And I wasn't spending my extra time doing film composing. And that worried me a little bit, because I'm going, if this is what I want my career to be, I feel like I should live, breathe, and eat this stuff. And it wasn't where my head was at. So one of the first jobs I got while at college was working as a live sound engineer and doing stuff for everything from like the spring uh, battle of the bands to like sporting events and running play-by-play -play and running the coaches' comms and stuff like that. It kind of carried everything. But I really like doing live sound. I really like the technical aspect of everything. So I switched my major to a sound recording technology major and quickly realized that I didn't really need school to do this as a living. <laughs> so I won't spend too much time on this because I know you're in school right now. But um, I finished school in about 2007. And by that time, I'd already done a number of projects. I'd recorded in studio my teachers for the project classes that I was in. So I was going and handing in the recording from that weekend on the first day of class. And they said, yeah, you're good. Go ahead and pass the class. And I moved on. Um, from there, I got into post-production for film because my internship was with a sound designer who lived in Salt Lake City. I'm actually from Utah. Didn't mention that earlier. I live in Provo, but I'm from here in California. So my internship was with a post-production sound guy, and I fell in love with movies. And it kind of came full circle because I want to do the film composing, but then I got into film sound, and explosions are way cooler than tremolos. So that's why I kept going that route. Um, I, I worked on three movies while I was in school as the only like, sound recording post-production professional on the crew. And so I did three movies and again realized I don't need to uh, take classes to do this full time because I was already doing it full time. So by 2007 I finished up school and started working full time as a sound designer and sound editor for film. I also did live sound, and I also worked in recording studios. So again, varied background. And you can see from my desire to go into school as a saxophone major, even in the four years, well, five or six years of college, my path changed a lot in those couple years. Even though I was in the music and arts, you know, everything was kind of in that field, but it still changed quite a bit. And I think that's actually kind of par for the course. I don't think... Uh, it's normal, at least for me in my experience, to go into college knowing exactly what you're going to do with your life and then have it work out, and then you go do what you want to do with your life. <laughs> so lots of twists and turns, but I ended up uh, working as a sound designer and sound engineer and then got into writing and then got into producing. So that's, that's the short version. About 2009, I started producing, and now I work full-time as a film and TV producer. Currently, I'm on a TV show with BYU TV called Relative Race. I literally just came off the road filming for two weeks to here to San Diego, where my family was visiting the McCulloughs, and now I'm here in this classroom talking to you. 
So, everything from saxophone to film scoring to live sound to post sound to writing to producing, that's been my last, well, 35 years of life, but the last 10 years of my creative professional career. So, moving forward, let's talk about the three principles, and this is a great place to whip out a notebook or an Evernote page or something like that, because I hope that there's a lot of takeaways. I hope that there's a lot of one-liners that actually become principles for your life. So, hey, for those that just came in, I'm Darren Smith, guest lecturing today, talking about principles that I've used and seen other people use in their lives to successfully become creative professionals. So, principle number one. This is taking me back to the college days. And the thing that I feel set me and a few others apart from the rest of my class. So in a, in a classroom like this, maybe we were learning how to do Pro Tools. There's maybe two of us out of the 12 in the class that ended up working in a field, whether it's music or film or something else, where Pro Tools was used on a day-to-day -day basis. So what is it that set apart those two, the 20% in the class, from everybody else? Any guesses? Work ethic. Work ethic. Absolutely work ethic. What was the other one? Passion. Passion, definitely. So you nailed it on the head, the work ethic and the passion. What, the difference was what happened outside of the classroom. Myself and others that successfully came out of college working full-time in a creative field decided to spend as much time outside of class working on the thing they wanted to work in. What does that mean? If you want to be a recording engineer, it means going into a studio becoming a free intern, becoming a low-level assistant, whatever it takes, going in and working as much as you can, getting as many, many hours doing what you want to be doing as possible. Why? Well, in my 12-now-year career, I've never once been asked by any person hiring me for a job or hiring me as an employee or hiring me for contract work I've never once been asked, did you get a career or did you get a degree in this thing that I'm hiring you to do? Mm -hmm. Now, I don't say that because I want to dissuade you from getting a degree. That's not what this talk is about. Um, I'm, all, I'm very much for education and learning as much as you can because in this environment, in a structured way, you're able to learn so much differently than in like being tossed into the deep end of the pool, which is kind of what I did to myself a few times. But... There's a huge difference between those that come out of school having done three projects in their classes and those who have worked 20 hours a week for two years by the time they graduate. The difference is night and day. And you don't have to ask that question, do you have a degree? Because I know, looking at the work that you're doing in front of me, that you can do the work. And that's what really matters in creative fields. Can you do the work or not? The very first job I ever got outside of college from somebody who didn't know me already, I went and applied to be a sound designer for some commercial work, some commercial video work. And the first one was like this motorcycle spot for CBS, <laughs> CBS Sports. And the guy brought me in and he said, hey, so you know I'm Pro Tools? He's like, yeah, I know Pro Tools. It's like, cool, um, here's a desk for you in the back. I was in a recording studio, so it wasn't like an edit bay or a designer, and he just put a laptop up for me in the back of the room and said, Go to work. Uh, okay, what's the spot? He's like, you'll figure it out. The video's in there, all the assets you need, all the sound effects, all the tracks, everything's in there. There's a script next to it. You'll figure it out. 
okay, I guess I'll figure it out. <laughs> so I sat down on the laptop and I looked and I said, okay, script. Well, there's the video file where here's my tracks. I'm like, okay, I'm figuring this out. I see how he lays it out maybe a little differently than I do, but I knew enough about Pro Tools and I knew enough about sound design to go, okay, I could wrap my head around this. He didn't check on me for 14 hours. <laughs> he didn't let me leave for a break for 14 hours. I had to get up and go to a break and I had to have food brought in, but I worked for 14 hours straight and he said, you're hired because I delivered a finished 90 second spot in those 14 hours. And he didn't have to ask, did I know what this button does? He didn't have to ask, do you know the proper way of delivering this file? He didn't have to ask any of those questions because he said, you can either do it or you can't. So how do you get from here to there? This is that A to B. Maybe A to Z is our, where we sit now to our perfect life career 10, 15, 20 years from now. But A to B is how do you get the first job right out of school? You have to go into that job knowing how to do the job. That's very different than a lot of careers. You don't go into being a surgeon day one operating on someone's brain. You do years and years of residency before you get to that point. In creative fields, when you're showing up and saying, I want to do this job, you need to already know how to do the job. So the principle I would give you for this one is to work for free while you can. You are in school, and so a lot of times, I don't want to make too broad of assumptions here, but a lot of times people in school have grants, they have scholarships, they have extra time that they normally don't have once they leave school. Um, most of you probably don't have spouses or kids, which take up a ton of time, I can attest to. I have three young boys and a wife. It's a lot of extra time. So work for free while you can. That means finding a roommate or a friend who's in a band and saying, hey, I want to record a song for you. I'll do it for free. I will mix it. I will do all of the production, and I will let you release it to your fans for free. Just give me the credit and let me work on it. It means going to your friend's live show and saying, I want to run sound for you. It means going to a, a writer's group and giving feedback to other writers. Okay, Working for free while you can. I don't advocate that once people are professionals, they work for free all the time because I think that's a bad uh, business plan. <laughs> provides no income when you work for free. But while you can, this is the time to take advantage of that huge opportunity where you have time to do that kind of work. So take advantage of it. It's what will set you apart from the other 20 people in your classes and give you that springboard into an actual job a week out of school, if that's what you're headed for, okay? Any questions on that before I move on? Okay, lots to take in. We'll ask Actually, them later. Yeah, please. Uh, do you got, like, any, um, <clears throat> like, uh, info on, like, studios that I could intern for? Like, here in San Diego? Because I know there's plenty in L.A. But, like, in, um, in San Diego, no, because I live in Utah. But I can... So one of the things I'll give at the end of this is my contact info. Oh. And literally, like any specific question that you're maybe like, oh, I don't want to ask that because it's just for me. Yeah. Hey, do you know how to find internships in San Diego? I do know how to find those. Um, so send me an email afterwards, okay. and I'll give you as detailed an answer as I can possibly give. Okay? okay. Yeah. I'm more into like electronic production. Which awesome. Have like studio jobs. You either kind of make it or not. Yeah. So is there a way that... Yeah. Um, See, so you're getting ahead of me with the stuff again already. Being really, really good is what I'm going to talk about later. So um, 
the other interesting thing about creative fields is a lot of time a job doesn't exist. Uh, I am a full-time television producer in the state of Utah for a TV show. Like, that job does not exist. If I had gone out looking for it, I probably wouldn't have found it, found me, because of other things I'm gonna talk about. So a lot of times it is figuring out how to make a living doing what you're doing and creating your own job, because there may not be people who are gonna pay you 100 grand a year plus benefits, plus health and dental, plus 401k for doing what you're doing. So, but one quick example of that, um, I have a friend named uh, David Peterson, and he is half or a third of a band called Can't Stop, Won't Stop. I don't know if you've heard of them or not. They've been on tons and tons of YouTube videos. And their strategy for coming out the gate saying, well, we wanna make music, and we don't want a job, and we wanna make this much money, and there's three of us. Their strategy was go to all these big YouTubers that are in Utah, the people that are doing a million views a week on their, video, on their videos, oh. and saying, here's our music, put it in your videos. Tag us at the bottom and put a link to iTunes. A year later, they were doing 25K a month just off of iTunes sales from those videos. Then they released an album, because <laughs> all that money was off of three songs. Then they released a full-length album, which they sold tens of thousands of copies of. And they still, like five, eight years later now, they're still seeing residual income from that initial bit of work. That's not a normal pathway that you would get in a class like this or in a, from a mentor or from somebody here at school that would say, well, here's how to chart out your path to becoming a full-time electronic musician. Um, that's how they did it. And so a lot of it is saying, well, this is what I want, and this is what I'm passionate about, and working your way backwards from that end goal and saying, well, I don't care what other people have done. I don't even care what the rules are. I just know I gotta make eight grand this month. How am I gonna do that consistently to where it becomes less and less stressful to make that eight grand? It just starts coming in on its own because of the work you put in. Okay, any other questions <coughs> about this part? Great question though, and we'll get to more of that. Um, some other thoughts on this. One is to manage our expectations and to be patient. Um, how many of you have a friend, or your friend could be yourself if you're too embarrassed to say, how many of you have either done this or have a friend that's done this, started a YouTube channel, started an Instagram page, started something with the idea of it blowing up, becoming an influencer and making tons of money, only to have it die out in two to six months? Why is that dying out? <laughs> <laughs> he ain't dying. I hope he ain't dying. I hope. But he's, he's getting there. How many of them gave up after a few weeks or a few months of trying? No? Hopefully not. I have a number of friends who have been like, hey guys, I'm starting this new thing. Go follow it. Two months later, dead silence. Nothing there on the page. No content, no updates. They gave up because there was no patience. They had extremely high expectations because they go, well, this guy and this girl and this friend of mine, they all did the same thing, and now they're making you know, bank because they're influencers and they're getting flown around the world doing this stuff. How long were they working at it before it became a big thing? How, what kind of work ethic do they have behind the scenes before it even got to a visual place where we could see it and we became notified of it to where it was even in our atmosphere, right? So... As we're working for free, as we're in college, as we're coming out of college, manage those expectations because sometimes these overnight successes are five to 10 years in the making. How many of you have heard of the band Imagine Dragons? Yeah. 
half the class at least. Okay. Imagine Dragons started in Provo, Utah at a little venue called Valor that I ran sound for for 10 years. I was with Imagine Dragons the very first show they ever played. And let me tell you, they went at it for five years before they were even looking at pursuing a record deal. Um, they released two EPs, two five-song EPs, well, a third one that became Night Visions, their first album. Um, and I just got to tell you that they had the kind of work ethic where they were already the biggest band in the world from day one. If you went to their shows, it felt like a stadium tour, but it was a room of 250 people. And they just kept slogging at it. They went through four different iterations of the band. They went through five years, three albums, two or three different sets of management teams, all because they were being patient. They had the work ethic and they had the expectations of this is going to happen, we just don't know when. And they kept at it, they kept at it, they kept at it, and now they're arguably one of the biggest bands in the world, at least one of the biggest like pop rock bands, right? They're everywhere. So... I wanted to talk about that, too, because Imagine Dragons are an interesting case study. There's another band out of Provo called Neon Trees. Who's heard of them? Oh, Neon Trees. Okay. I toured with Neon Trees for six months as their tour manager, their live sound engineer. It was a solid six, eight months of touring. And as we were touring on that first album, their song Animal went big. It went Billboard number one. It went huge. Six months later, Imagine Dragons just skyrocketed past them. Similar work ethic, similar expectations and patience, just different music, different audiences, different everything. But Imagine Dragons is an interesting case because they just released an album last year, their Evolve album. Went, I don't know, triple, quadruple, platinum. Like, it's huge. It's everywhere. The songs are on all of these massive uh, Hollywood blockbuster trailers. You know, they're releasing song after song. They just did, like, 11 months of touring, I think. Um, if you can flip over to that tab, the next one over, and hit that. This, is, this came up like six days ago. Five da- here. Yeah, hit that one. This is five days ago. Pump it. It's definitely a badge of honor. Even though our you know, 400 and something day tour has technically ended, the time to reflect is a luxury we have not yet had. You know, we've really just been kind of branding away at our careers, not looking at it so much as a, we finished this, let's take a break. It's like, we finished this, so let's do the next thing. I think the fans are very confused because we put out a couple songs, and sometimes we'll just put out a song. So I don't think they really know what's coming. We get a fair amount of pleasure out of that. <laughs> I don't know why. It's pretty sadistic. It's pretty dark. Yeah, we finished Evolve. There was a lot of clarity on that record, both sonically and I think just as a band. And we just kept creating. And so we have these songs that we created after Evolve where we thought, you know, we could wait a couple years, I guess, like fans are supposed to, and put it out, but then it's going to be irrelevant to us because in two years we're going to be in a different place. So we just thought, well, this is a new world of music. Why don't we put it out right now?
feels like a sister album to evolve. It kind of completes the cycle to us. Um, it's fresh and it feels green and it feels healthy. And we're all really proud of it. Evolve was very like minimalist, black, just a ray of light. I think out of the, out of that sort of deadness, out of the nothingness, can grow something beautiful. Evolve is like, where am I going? I know there's color. Something new and origins is this is where you're going, and it's a, it's a great future. And to be 10 years into our band, I think feels kind of right. I am the machine. Yeah, we kind of wanted to drop this just like, yeah. like people think we're gonna go away for a while, and we're like, we have an album. Yeah that we've been secretly working on. We are, we are the face of the future. We are, we are the digital army. We are, we are the face of the future. We don't want to change, we just want to change everything. So when I saw that scrolling through Facebook, I, it kind of blew my mind a little bit. Because I'd spent time on the road with bands. I know what the tour schedule is like. It's like a two-year cycle. You go on, you release an album, you tour on that album for a solid year, you get completely burned out and sick for two weeks, and then you go back into the studio and you start the next one. The fact that they're doing this right now is insane because they're gonna go right back to touring, but this is a band that just loves touring. So I bring up this video for two reasons. One, managing expectations is within your own atmosphere, within your own frame of how you wanna operate in this world. There really aren't rules. This is the, one of the biggest bands in the world saying, we're going to flip the script. We're going to do it our own way. We want to tour. We love touring. So we're going to keep doing that. So here's an album. We're not going to wait a year. Here it is. So they knew what they wanted, and they worked backwards to get what they wanted. And that's available to every single one of us, whether we're in this room, whether we're two years old and we're going to be doing it 20 years from now, or whether we're the biggest band in the world. That's a reality, is that the creative industries that we're all looking to get into there's not a lot of rules. Yeah. It's really open for anybody to say, this is what I want to become. This is the value I want to create for people. And I'm just going to do it my own way. And when you do that, that's when I think you find success. The other interesting thing about that specific video is it was shot by a friend of mine named Matt Easton. And Matt's a filmmaker. He's a director and shooter and editor. And 10 years ago, he started this video series called The Occidental Saloon, where he went out for free, found bands in Provo, and he shot them in cool locations and did acoustic videos. So he'd take a song from Imagine Dragons or Neon Trees or Parlor Rock or Moth in the Flame, and he'd sit them down in like a barn, and he'd say, play. And they'd play it five times. He'd have him and two buddies with a couple of five Ds, and they'd shoot it and edit it, and they were incredible. Did he do the one with Bad Sons at the beach? Uh, probably. I, think, I, think I don't I remember that one, but there was that, that series that he did for free. He probably did 20 videos, maybe. Him and a couple of buddies turned into a TV show called Audiophiles that Imagine Dragons was also on, which turned into him directing three out of the last six music videos for Imagine Dragons. One which won, not the, uh, is the MTV Music Award for Best Video this last year. My friend Matt won that because eight, ten years ago, he was doing work for free when he could. That's the kind of trajectory you can see when, you're t when I'm talking about these principles. You do work for free, you latch yourself onto the other creative talent, the people that you see are going somewhere, you hang on to them and you provide value and you give them as much as you can, okay?
Um, all right, principle number two. I'm getting into it a little ahead of time, but that's okay. Principle number two, replace entitlement with creating value. In this industry, there's, there's not a lot that is owed you. When you become an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor, you put in your time and you can pretty much expect that you can land a job, right? Mm -hmm. You'll have a 250K a year salary at least for the rest of your life. You'll pay off your student loans in 10 or 15 years and you'll have a nice house and a couple nice cars and a nice family and a nice life. You cannot expect that in creative fields because there's no guarantee. There's nothing that says put in the time and get X. I have to share this thing with, that I got uh, years ago. Um, it's going to take a little bit, but I hope it's fun for you. Because um, as soon as I got out of school, I was working full time. A year later, people that were in classes like this with me were emailing me asking if I had any jobs available, if I was hiring. I was like, well, no, it's just me. I make like 35 grand a year, and I'm, it's me in a small apartment <laughs> doing sound design. But no, and, but it made me think like, wow, there's a big difference between being the person asking for work and being the person who potentially could have work or has the, the visual aesthetic of somebody who maybe has enough work to go around, right? Um, around that time, I got this email from this guy and I screenshotted it and saved it and I put it on like six different Dropbox accounts because I never <laughs> wanted to lose this email because it is the best example of entitlement that I've ever seen from someone in the creative industry, ever. So not only do you get a guest lecture today, you get a creative performance reading of <clears throat> an assertion of creative work. Now, I know, as Darren Smith, that assertion is not a word. Assertion is a word. So we're starting off on a really good foot, foot here. Okay, an assertion of creative work. This is an example of what not to do, an example of the mindset that will kill your career, okay? I hope you enjoy it. I'm quoting word for word. Apologies for any grammatical errors or anything like that. They're not mine. The exact job I want is filmmaker, but don't let that deter you from hiring me. I have two solid film ideas that I'm working on, pushing every other idea aside. I've been completely unemployed for the last four months and have at least one interview a week during that time. During the wait to start my very first regular full-time job after college, I've applied to jobs that interest me and for companies that I feel I want to work for, but only in capacities in which I know I'm capable. There is not one job I have applied to that I am not qualified for or that I cannot do well. As to prior experience, I have never had a job that I have not done before. Waiter, warehouse manager, film crew, personal assistant, etc. My education is my only bargaining chip. I don't have any previous experience because I've never been given the opportunity. That is all. Nothing is hindering me from any entry-level position or position that requires nominal aptitude or experience. I did well in my classes, received usually the best grades possible, and on two occasions, more than 100% on exams. This is proof of my dedication and interest in doing and being the best. A misconception I have seen in my months of interviewing is that most people seem to think that with a film degree, I'm only capable of operating a camera or editing video. There are many aspects that are learned in college regarding the film industry, which can translate well in any creative business environment. In actuality, the difference between majors is essentially four classes, and be it every, and 
this is confusing. And be it everyone I have interviewed with seems to feel those four classes, which somehow made my degree in film less attractive than communications, business, or marketing, classify me in such a manner that does not fit my interests or intellect. Working a camera, PA, I don't know what you people think film majors should be isolated as being suited for. I'm halfway done, guys. (laughs) This is amazing. I graduated with honors, receiving nothing lower than a B in my entire college career. I studied chemistry as a major my first two years of college, taking calculus, anatomy, physics, chemistry, and biology courses. I finished my last course in Latin to fulfill my language requirement. Nevertheless, I feel grossly underappreciated and that my skills are being underutilized. Yes, I want to make movies, and I do know how. Filmmaker is a job I have to create for myself. When I have all the things I know I need prepared, I can begin. Meanwhile, I need a regular full-time job in a creative atmosphere, be it an assistant, a paid intern, or something more suited for a college graduate. (sighs) Wow. I know a lot of people start at the bottom, and that is perfectly fine with me. I'd just like to be able to move up accordingly, be treated fairly, do work I enjoy. The opportunity to do the job well is key. A younger, more intelligent mind, such as mine, is a better fit than any manager I've ever met. The old, the proprietors, need to let the new take over, especially in today's economy. That I am in fact competing with others that seem to have more experience in fields doing the exact work you are hiring for is a peculiar problem. It doesn't put any alarms in your head. Why else would someone with the years of experience you expect or desire be seeking new employment in this economy? Obviously, they are not working at their previous employer because they were doing something wrong. It seems obvious to me that a mind for you to mold would be a more intelligent fit compared to that of one which is set in their ways. Now he quotes Sun Tzu in the middle of this email. (laughs) I'm not joking, guys. The clever combatant looks to the effect of combined energy, hence his ability to pick out the right men and utilize combined energy. When he utilizes combined energy, his fighting men become like rolling logs or stones. Thus, the energy developed by good fighting men is as the momentum of a round stone rolled down a mountain thousands of feet in height. This is the use of energy. Almost there, guys. I can ideally work on your creative team, work as a copywriter, give product reviews of gear I use for you or your clients. I can work as an assistant in order to learn how your creative team and production or advertising function. I write and communicate well. I understand basics and grammar and punctuation. Know to be polite and accepting and tactful when expressing my own opinions. As stated above, I honestly do not feel there's any job I am applying for that I cannot do. I'd like for my work, I'd like to work for a company that will treat me like a human being, offer a 401k, health benefits, and pay at least 35,000 a year. As to the results of this communique, I've heard your advice, your critiques, your requests, and your complaints. The end. I need a nap after that. <laughs> this, this email was sent to every single film professional in Utah, word for word. Oh. He copied the Utah film directory, went through and copied every single email and blast emailed it out. I emailed four or five other friends and every single person got the exact same email. <laughs> because I'm a bit of a sadist, I went and looked on LinkedIn for this guy and he does not work as a filmmaker. 
Surprising, I know. <laughs> okay. This was a long example of what entitlement looks like. If you come out of college, let me back up. If you currently hold any similar uh, ideals as to what this future as a creative professional looks like, if it sounds anything like this email, it's not going to get you far. Because the way to make it in this industry, whether it's music, the arts, dance, writing, film, any creative field, the way to make it is to not be entitled. It's to provide value however, whenever, and to whoever you can. What does value mean? It means something that benefits the other person at least more than it benefits you. It can be a symbiotic relationship for sure, but it has to benefit the other person more. Now, let me talk again about that. Uh, my friends that are in Can't Stop, Won't Stop, because it's a perfect example. They went to a big YouTuber, someone who had at the time three or four million subscribers. Did he need music? Yeah. Did he want to pay for music? Yeah, probably not. It's a fair assumption that save you know, a couple of grand per video, that'd be nice. They went to him and he said, you can use our music for free. Massive value to this YouTuber, right? What did they get in return? Probably more value than what they gave initially. But that initial offering of value, the initial going up to somebody and saying, I wanna do this for you for X, for free, for trade, for whatever, that initial offer was heavily weighted to the other party, saying, I know this is what you want. I know this is what you need in order to succeed in your business and I wanna help you do that. There's a number of examples and people are now touting this as like, stuff they came up with. But this concept has been around for a long, long time. But when you're going and interviewing for, in a creative field, a lot of people now are saying, well, just do a project for them for free. Say you want to work for Gary Vaynerchuk, who's like a big YouTuber. He's a business guy. He talks about business all the time. And he's got a couple of companies that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars, right? The guy that is currently his video, like daily video guy, um, his name. I think it's Derek. Um, went to him and created a video based on a whole bunch of YouTube TED Talks and YouTube videos and stuff that had already been created. Created a massive like trailer for him that was about a minute long, had some killer music that he found, and some really rad editing. And he said, hey Gary, I made this for you. You can use it for free however you want. I'd love credit, but you don't have to give it. But what I really would love is to be your video guy because I know you don't have one. He was hired a week later from that video. How long did it take him? Probably five hours. <laughs> okay. Now, again, manage expectations. That's not going to work for everybody. But if you go to somebody that you want to work with, this applies especially to the thing you were talking about, right? You want to go to Cascade or somebody that's like a legit DJ. I have friends that are on Cascade albums. Um, what's the song you just came out with, Fun? Do you know Cascade at all? I, I know him. I don't. Um, there's a, a local group called Mr. Tape that have done like two or three collaborations with them. It's my friends Mason and Nate. They're both like producers in Provo, Utah. Again, a lot of music that goes on in Provo, Utah, which is why I still live there. So they created a project together called Mr. Tape, and their music is rad. It's really good. But Nate Piper has worked with Cascade and with Cascade's uh, engineer, Finn, for five, six years on a number of projects, but they went to them and they said, hey, we're gonna write a song. 
It's an awesome song. We'd love for you to help like remix it and add your flavor to it. And it turned into something that was like a million streams on Spotify the first week. And they get to share in the profits. Now Cascade gets a huge chunk of that, but still, they, they could have released that song on Spotify and it could have done a thousand plays. I don't know what you make on a million streams, probably like four cents. I mean, we're talking big money here. So <laughs> Spotify is another topic for another day. But their collaboration happened because they went to, them, went to Cascade and said, we want to do this for you. Because we know that anytime you do a collaboration, anytime you can have a song brought to you that's finished, that's ready to go, and you've got to do about a week's worth of work, that's good business for everyone involved. So when I say create value, it's looking um, – there's another good example. Um, there's a guy named Ryan Holiday who wrote a book called The Obstacle is the Way and Ego is the Enemy. He's like 31. He's a young dude. But when he was 19, he was the marketing director of American Apparel. Like, the guy's just kind of crazy when it comes to business and working with people and stuff like that. And he wrote about this theory called the canvas theory, which is if you want to work with a painter, you don't go to them with a whole bunch of paint and say, hey, I'm ready to paint for you. And you, you don't go to try to take their job. You don't go to work side by side and paint on the same canvas with them. What you do is you bring a blank canvas. And you're willing, you go to them willing to hold that canvas in front of them for as long as it takes for them to finish the painting that they have in their mind. How does that apply with what you want to do, right? The canvas theory is a great principle for getting ahead when it comes to collaborations, when it comes to finding partners to work with, when it comes to finding future employers. Think of it in that mindset as opposed to the mindset of this guy who wrote and sent this email and blasted it to everybody, right? wildly different worldviews, wildly different ways of approaching the, the career that you want to have. Okay, I've got one more principle for you, and then we can do Q&A, and then I can leave you guys alone. <laughs> it's all right. Um, the third principle is to focus on your work and your craft. Um, Jerry Seinfeld, years ago, um, a guy went up to him after a set, and we all know who Jerry Seinfeld is. And this was at the height of Seinfeld the show. I mean, we're talking the biggest show on TV. We're made uh, Jerry Seinfeld worth billions of dollars, right? So at the time, though, he was still a touring comic. And this guy was hanging around clubs doing open mics. And he went after a set and went and talked to Jerry Seinfeld. Um, so he saw his chance to get a minute or two alone with Jerry. So he went over and he asked him if he had any tips for a young comic, somebody who wanted to follow in his footsteps. Jerry Seinfeld is one of like the top 10 comics ever, right? So he goes up and asks him, do you have any tips? And this is this guy's account. What he told me was something that would benefit me for a lifetime. He said the way to be a better comic was to create better jokes. And the way to create better jokes was to write every day. But his advice was better than that. He had a gem of a leverage technique that he used on himself, and you can use it to motivate yourself even when you don't feel like it. He revealed a unique calendar system he uses to pressure himself to write. Here's how it works. He told me to get a big wall calendar that has a whole year on one page and hang it on a prominent wall. The next step was to get a big red magic marker. He said, for each day that I do my task of writing, I get to put a big red X over that day. 
After a few days, you'll have a chain and just keep at it and that chain will grow longer and longer every day. You'll like seeing that chain, especially when you get a few weeks under your belt. Your only job next is to not break the chain. So the principle is don't break the chain. Write every day. Write jokes every day. Write music every day. Notate every day. Do sound every day. Perform every day. Whatever it is that you're working on, whatever it is you aspire to become and do as a career, professionals do it every day no matter what. It's, it's part of their day. They get up, they eat breakfast, they do the work. That's what life is as a creative professional. And a lot of times we look at the touring, we look at the interviews, we look at the performances, we look at the Instagram pictures, and we see, wow, that looks fun. The people that are doing it right, I can't say everybody that's that way, but I can tell you that Imagine Dragons, they get off, they, they get off the stage. They go to their hotel room or their tour bus. They wake up at 7 a.m. and they start working on the next batch of songs. That's the only way they ever could have released an album after touring 33 countries and 120 shows in a year. Okay? That's the kind of work ethic we're talking about in order to make it as a creative professional in whatever industry you're seeking to, to do this in. I like to see that routine. <laughs> that morning routine, just all of them just bang up. It's crazy, right? <laughs> okay, I got one more thing to share when it comes to this. Um, and it's, again, talking about focusing on your work and your craft. Um, if you can go to that last tab, uh, Mr. McCullough. Um, so this is, you know... A, don't pay attention to Charlie Rose. He's there. This is me getting back to Me Too movement, right? So pay no attention to Charlie Rose. He does ask a great question of Steve Martin. Now, we all know who Steve Martin is. Crazy good comic, especially in the 80s. But he went from being a comic to a writer to starring in movies. And from a young age, he was a banjo player. Did you guys know he won a Grammy in 2009 for playing banjo? Okay. This is a guy who understands how to get to the top tier of basically anything he does. So Charlie Rose asks him this question, and I love the answer. So go ahead and hit that for me. It might be a second or two. Somehow I was able to stay um, it's right after this part. my comedy act or banjo playing. Someone stood up in an audience somewhere and said to you, how do you be successful? Mm -hmm. And you said you have to be undeniably good at something. Well, it, it really is this. When people ask me, say, how do you, you know, how do you make it in show business or whatever? And what I always tell them, I've said it many years, and nobody ever takes note of it because it's not the answer they wanted to hear. What they want to hear is, here's how you get an agent, here's how you write a script, here's how you do this, here's it. But I always say, be so good they can't ignore you. And I just think that if somebody's thinking, how can I be really good? People are going to come to you. It's much easier than uh, doing it that way than going to cocktail parties. <laughs> you know? Born standing up, okay. a comic's life by Steve Martin. Be so good they can't ignore you. I've written about this. I've repeated it. I've written it on my walls. I've written it on notepads. I've had it as the backdrop on my computer screen. This is a principle to live your life by if you're a creative. Be so good they can't ignore you. Becoming remarkable is a huge feat, but 
the great thing, you know, I talked about how there's no direct path and there's no guarantees. The thing I love about being a creative professional is that there are no rules as well. There's no limitations to how we accomplish that goal of becoming so good you can't be ignored. And that can mean a number of things. If your goal is to have tons of fame and tons of followers and tons of fans, you know, that's arguably a bigger goal than becoming so good that you can't be ignored by the person hiring you for the job that you're applying for. You know, um, I'll share one last personal example. Um, when I, at the end of last year, I was running a film production company, a small film production company with just me and a couple other guys. And it just wasn't working out. It wasn't the job and the career and the lifestyle I wanted. We were doing commercial video work. It kind of sucked. <laughs> like it just wasn't fun. And we wanted to make movies, we wanted to write scripts, and we wanted to do all this other stuff that was more creative and more fulfilling. So shut down the business. I said, guys, I'm done. I'm gonna step away. And uh, you know, I took a few months to figure out what the next step was. And unbeknownst to me, in the background, a couple of people that I knew started chattering because they heard that I was no longer doing this full-time thing, running a company that I had started. And um, it was about January of this year where I got an email, or a Facebook message rather, from a friend who was working on this TV show called Relative Race. And he sent me this message and said, hey, I think you'd be perfect for this job. Um, they need some new producers because they just had to let go three out of the four from the last season. And I think you'd be really good. So why don't you come and chat with me? And then if you're, you know, if, you, if it sounds like something you want, then I'll put your name up to them. So I went and had lunch with this friend of mine. Talked about the gig. I'm like, I actually sound kind of perfect for this gig because of all the experience that I've had over the last 10 years was kind of perfect. I'd done tons of interviews. I'd done kind of run and gun live type stuff. Done lots of documentary. It's like, yeah, let's let's chat. I definitely want to see what this is. Um, so I went in. And I don't say this to brag, but just to show an example, a real example from my life of what is possible and what can happen. So I went in and talked with them. And you know, again, it was a great interview. They're like, you sound exactly perfect for this job. We've got three or four candidates, but we really think this might work out. So the next day, they sent over an offer. And I kind of laughed because it was a pretty low offer for you know, being a senior producer on a TV show. Um, so I emailed him back. I said, well, it's unfortunate, but I, I have to say no because, you know, I can pay myself more than that if I just go and keep doing commercial work. Ten minutes later, I had an offer that was 20% higher. And I said, okay, I need two, three days because I have a lot of other, you know, I was applying for a thing in with Amazon Studios down here in Santa Monica. I was applying for something in New York. And I was just like, well, I don't know where I want to go. Do I want to stay in Utah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, luckily, I, I say now, those other two job offers went away, so I accepted the job, and now I've done two seasons of that show. But in the course of that year, this year so far, as of just last week, I had my third pay bump with these guys because I proved my value and had some leverage going into the next season, the next season, the next season. So why do I share that story? To say that the way I have found success in, the, in this industry, whether it's music and touring, whether it's you know, sound for film, whether it's producing, is becoming so good you can't be ignored. Now, none of you before today had ever heard of me, 
that's not important because I'm not the one, <laughs> I'm not coming to you guys for employment right now. So you have to think of it in the sphere of what you're trying to accomplish. I needed to be so good that I couldn't be ignored by about five people in Utah. And because I was able to do that, I now have a really great career. I have a great paying job with this company, with this TV show. Something that I'm gonna stick around with for at least another season or two because it's that fulfilling and that great. So the way to do it is to kind of work your way backwards. So figure out what it is that you want out of your life as a creative professional. Whether it's money, whether it's fame, whether it's just a consistent job, whether it's the fulfillment of creating work that you're proud of, whatever it is, put that big, audacious, singular goal up on the wall and then start working backwards toward it, thinking along the way, how can I provide value to people? How do I keep my expectations in check? And how can I daily work on my craft until I get to the point where I become so good I can't be ignored? And the answer to that is it never ends. If you are a creative professional, you find something that you love doing every single day, and it's not work. It's the best thing you could possibly do at the time. So that's, that's my thoughts. Those are my remarks. So thanks for the time. I'm happy to answer any and all questions. I want to know what questions you have because I'm, I love Q&A. But if you guys would rather spend the rest of your time getting back to your work, that's totally fine too. But thanks again. That was fun. <laughs>
and then logic and then specialized software from there. So I have another question regarding Yeah, that. please. So you think if I know logic, like the ins and outs of logic, I can get to know Pro Tools just as easy or is there like more complications in the, the software? There are differences to each software, but the thing that you want to spend your time learning initially is the conceptually what you're trying to accomplish, right? And so if you're trying to do sequencing, if you understand the ins and outs, the, the way that these uh, DAWs process that information that you're putting in and getting out, the way things are edited. If you understand the big concept, you really can overlay that to any platform. It's just learning keystrokes and stuff. Okay. But I think it's definitely important to learn and, I mean, literally go through the manual and every page of Pro Tools. Literally go through every single menu folder drop down item and know what it is and what it does and how it's used even if you'll never use it in your career you will use it in your career there were times where i was doing post-production sound in the back of the room and somebody goes hey do you know how to blah 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 i'm like yeah control alt function 4z and they go okay <laughs> the more you know the more valuable you are so but there's definitely a difference. Uh, it comes up a lot in editing, more so than I think than in like audio and, and music. People that are in audio and music tend to go from like Logic to Pro Tools pretty seamlessly without much, you know, much drama. In editing for film, especially, there you'll have people that are entrenched in Premiere and entrenched in Final Cut and entrenched in Avid, and they will never ever change because that's an inferior platform. Blah 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 blah. Those people are technical editors. They're not creative editors. A creative editor is an editor first, and the tool comes secondary. And I would urge you to become that way, whether you want to do music or sequencing or notation or whatever it may be. Become really good at the thing that you're trying to be good at, not the program that you are using. Also be really good at the program you're using, but if you want to be a sound editor, be a really great sound editor. The tool shouldn't matter. It should just be the one that you choose that helps you get your work done the most efficient way possible. And if you're working at a house that has a platform in place for every, every task, then learn the platform in and out. Learn the four other platforms at the same time and become more and more and more valuable. Cool. Other questions? Yeah, please. Great question. I'm going to push back on that premise a little bit because the statement you made initially, I think, is a limiting statement in the sense that oversaturation exists and that it's limiting to what your potential is as an artist, as a creative. My wife's a wedding photographer in Utah, and in Utah, there are bajillions of wedding photographers. It's just a thing. Like, People go to school, and then when they don't get their degree, they buy a camera and they become a wedding photographer. That's just how it works in Utah. And, and she's extremely limited in the way that she sees her business and her future career because of that mentality. So I want to try to break that mentality a little bit. And I would say start from what you love, what you love doing um, and start with what is it that you are driven to do every single day where it's not hard. So if you are, um, whatever style of electronic music, whatever style of music that is yours, 
just do that every day because it's going to evolve, it's going to change. I mean, you just saw the difference between Imagine Dragons. We just did an album, now we do another one. It's a sister album, but the music's very different. I mean, a year apart, and the music's very different. And so I wouldn't worry about coming up with a sound that can be defined instantly. I would worry, focus more on what is it that you're trying to put out in the world? Is there an emotion? Is there, lyrically speaking right now, is there something where you're driven to put art out into the world? Because art is communication. Art is a language that can communicate unlike anything else, right? Music, painting, dance, like these things that don't have words attached, there is art there. There's things that are communicated emotionally and intelligently that we can't do just by talking or writing. So I would urge you to focus first there on like, well, what am I driven to create as an artist? And then seeking the, the audience, the platform, et cetera. But I want to answer that question too. So there's an article by a guy named Kevin Kelly who wrote, um, the article he wrote is called A Thousand True Fans. And the concept looks like this. Um, it's the same concept that Amazon is built on. So if you've got a curve like this, you know, here's your blockbuster. But as you go down the curve, you know, maybe this is 100 sales or 1,000 sales. Maybe this is you know, $100 million. <laughs> Somewhere along there is probably where you're going to fall. But Amazon makes a little bit of money with the blockbuster stuff, and the rest of their money is on the long tail. And the funny thing is, if you take that long tail and just flip it, it looks exactly the same as that huge curve. The way they're doing it is, it's just instead of you know hitting a million people for one, or instead of hitting one person for a million dollars, they're hitting a million people for one dollar. That's what I was trying to say. So um, Kevin Kelly in his uh, article, "A Thousand True Fans." basically states that if you can find a thousand true fans, you can have a living. And a true fan is defined by somebody who buys everything you put out. So as long as you can put out $100 worth of content a year, 100 individual songs, a couple albums, some t-shirts, some posters, some ticket sales to shows, whatever it is, a thousand of those people need $100,000 a year. And pretty much anybody, anywhere can live on $100,000 a year, especially as a single person. Now, that's not going to happen overnight, but you start with one, and then you go to 10, and then you go to 50, and then you go to 100, and then it grows and grows and grows. And five, 10 years later, you've got 1,000 true fans. So how do you find true fans? Provide value. What is it? Who are the people you're already associating with? Online, in person, in friend groups, how do you define them? Where do they hang out online? What kind of music do they listen to? So if you've got a group of friends that you know would love your music, well, how do you already define them? What do they wear? Where do they go online? What pages do they like on Facebook? What Instagram accounts do they follow? That's literally the way to kind of work your way back to like, okay, I'm starting right here with zero fans, zero followers. Maybe you got five or 10 because you've got friends and family, right? Maybe you got a few hundred because you've been at it for a year or two, I don't know. But okay, well, what does my audience look like now? I have 100 fans, 100 people on my email list, 100 people on my Twitter page, whatever it is. Well, what's the thing that is similar to all of them? Okay, I'm gonna do more of that to please the fans that I already have. So that's a way of doing it. Um, the last thing I'll say is calculate less. 
So spend less time thinking about how, what is it that they want and um, more time thinking about how to make them happy. I know that they're very similar and they're right next to each other. But a lot of times audiences and fans don't know what it is they want until they get it in front of them. I guarantee Imagine Dragons didn't go, hey everybody, do you like this song better or this song better? Because based on which one you choose, I'm gonna put that one on our album. No, they said, we're being audacious, we're being crazy, we're breaking the rules and changing the norms. Here's a new album, suck on that, <laughs> right? But they're gonna sell a bajillion albums because they're Imagine Dragons. So become your own version of that and don't worry about the fact that you don't have a million followers right now. Worry about, am I happy every single day? Do I enjoy the work that I'm creating? Am I fulfilled? Those questions matter more than, you know, am I selling a million copies right now? Because the more that you provide value to your fans, the more they're going to share it with other people, the faster that's going to grow. And that's how you kind of work your way from, you know, zero fans up to a thousand, up to a million. Does that answer it, Lauren? Other questions about the slide? Yeah. <coughs> Talk about, uh, you said uh, work for free while you can. Yeah. So I've been like, I've been building like a portfolio for myself as a videographer and as a musician. Awesome. Um, like over a year since I've been out of college. Um, and how do, I, I'm stuck at the point of going and actually getting a career like, and get paid for it. And mm -hmm. I'm kind of like, I'm getting, I'm, I'm losing my patience. So do you have any like advice on how to sell your, your value? to like a, an employer or, or whichever, yeah. So I'm trying to get into like a production company. Okay, like that. so yeah. the goal is to find a job somewhere. Yes, a okay. paid job. Gotcha. Yeah. So I'm just kind of done doing free work. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I would say, first off, make it really easy for people to find you. So have a portfolio page. So if you, go, if you click on this, like uh, scroll down real quick, Doug. This is my website, it's literally just like here are links to what I'm working on, how to get in touch with me. Like, there's no content really on this opening page. I'm not saying this is the right way to do it, but what I want people to do when they visit my site is quickly give them the, the button to push based on what it is they want. Do you want to read what I've written? Do you want to look at what I've produced? Do you want to get in contact with me? So make sure you have a portfolio up online somewhere. It could be a Vimeo page, a YouTube channel, it could be a website. I highly recommend a website so that you own it so it never goes away, never has ads in front of it. You just say, look, this is me. Um, and then I would say start just sending that to people and with a value statement, with saying, hey, I'm a videographer. I love your brand for X, Y, Z reasons. I would love to do a video project with you. When's a good time to chat? Like five sentences. Not this big, long diatribe. Yeah. <laughs> this is all the things that I want out of life. It's, a quick email, I mean, you can literally go on IMDB or you can go to any, in, like the uh, Manta or there's like a dozen different websites if you just Google like production companies in San Diego. I guarantee you'll find 50 companies just from that list. It's not hard to either go to LinkedIn, Facebook or Instagram and find their contact info. If they're on Instagram, you literally can hit the three dots in the corner and send them a message. Done, like straight contact info. So. Go to them with a value statement, a short email that says, hey guys, I love this uh, shirt that you guys made. A buddy of mine just was wearing it the other day and I was like, holy crap, I love it. I noticed you don't have a lot of video content. I'd love to work with you on a project. Here's a link to my work. 
when is a good time to chat? Phrase it that way, when's a good time to chat? If they don't get back to you, it means they either have somebody or they're not interested or they can't afford it, whatever. You don't wanna work with them, so don't be discouraged. <laughs> you're gonna take those 50 companies you found and you're gonna email all of them and five of them are gonna respond and one of them is gonna give you a project. That's what I mean by managing expectations. Okay. Is yeah. It's not gonna be 50 responses with, hell yeah, let's do this, 100 grand, go. Like, that's not, but you know, you may go in that process of searching those 50 companies, you may see that eight of them have jobs pages where they're posting available jobs. Or you go on LinkedIn and you check it out and it's like, oh, they're hiring. You may find that. Um, but the process of reaching out, like when I had a production company, this happened once a week and people never did it the right way. So I never even responded because it was like, you guys are dumb. So if someone had come to me and said, hey, I love the videos you guys are making. I'd love to work with you on a project. Will you let me know the next time you have something come up? When, when can we chat about it? Something like that. I would have been, you know what? I've got 10 minutes on Thursday. Why don't you come down and we'll chat or do lunch or whatever. And I met with two people in 10 years because only two people were able enough to be professional about it instead of saying, hey, I'm looking for internships and blah, 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 blah. And 14 paragraphs later, it's like, oh my gosh, I'll just delete. Can't delete fast enough. Short email link to your work in case they want to check it out and give them a value statement that goes, I know what it is you need and what you're looking for right now. Because as soon as they feel that from you, it's like, oh man, this guy's awesome. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you have one. Yeah. Did we have an in, in the back? No? Okay. Go ahead. I have a question regarding that one guy who's saying that, you know, monologue of an email. <laughs> uh, how exactly was he able to do that? Because you said like, he was able to contact multiple people in like your circle. How was he able to do that? So the Utah film industry has a directory where oh, people no. have just posted their contact info. So you can find. No, I mean you can. If you're if you're um, resourceful enough, you can literally find anyone's email on the internet. Mm. I'll put it that way. So there are plenty of tools. There are plenty of ways to find people's contact info. So that's not the hard part. The hard part is getting their attention. So once you get their email address, are you gonna send a long email? No, don't do that. Send a five sentence email or less that says, I know exactly what it is you're looking for. I know exactly how to give it to you. Here's how to get in touch with me. <laughs> Boom. And you'll hear from 1% of those people, 2% of those people. That's the reality of the industry and how it works. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. So, so like basically how to get people to care is show them that what value yeah. yeah, you're showing that you care enough about them to make that statement the first thing out of your mouth. Right. It's not like, hey, I'm looking for an internship. Do you have one available? It's like, well, that's what's in it for me, not what's in it for you. So it's if you're going to them and saying, hey guys, I don't even talk a ton about yourself. I'm looking for this and looking for this and trying to do this. No, that's for when you talk to them. The first thing is, I love what you do. Buddy of mine sent me your work or I saw your shirt, I saw your product, use your product, whatever, love your business because I'm a real person and I've actually seen your product. I'd love to work with you on a project. I, you know, I'm uh, not work with you on a project, but I'd love to do a project for you guys. When's a good time to talk? Because that's nebulous enough to be like, okay, well, I'm, this video producer wants to do a project with us. There's value in that for sure. Let's talk. Then you can get into the specifics of, well, look, 
I do these short 60-second testimonial videos where I find four brand ambassadors, I cut their interviews together, put some rad music and some skate stuff behind it, or whatever it is that you do. Um, and I charge $2,500 for that. Sweet. When can we start? I mean, I've done that dozens of times. The first couple of years we started our production company, that was like our major product for four years was like literally go to every company we could find, say, we love your product, we want to create a little testimonial video for you because I noticed you don't have anything on your website. Let's go. <laughs> but that first email is, yeah, no pricing, no what I want out of this. Love to create a video for you guys. Cool. Other questions? Yeah. Uh, what majors uh, should I have done for uh, in order to be like a casting director for like more seconds? Uh, I don't know. No, I got to go with that one. Uh, I have another one. Uh, <laughs> as an aspiring voice actor, is like LA kind of like the place to be for the gigs, or should I just focus on like online auditioning? Yeah, I mean, vo with Voices.com and other things like yeah. that, you literally can work from your basement in your underwear. Oh, that's cool. So, I mean, have but that the same thing about that. Like, I've hired dozens of time off of Voices.com. I don't yeah. care where people work. I care that their voice matches the, you know, the prompts that we've been given from the client right. you know, they say we need a british male 35 to 55 that you know that can do is. aggressive or whatever like gotcha. so that goes back to the you know having a portfolio whether it's on voices or your own website saying here's me here's my voice here's me doing 20 voices and here's where you can contact me and hire me so make sure it's very easy for people to get uh, in contact with you and then figure out okay well who is doing the hiring casting directors a lot of times creative directors in companies like mine, little production companies or ad agencies or digital agencies, they're constantly hiring for that kind of work. Um, as far as becoming one, I think you just do it. I mean, right. Right. if you want to be a casting agent, there's no school for that. You literally find talent and then you just be their agent. <laughs> there's, there's no reason to say, well, I have to go through these hoops in order to do that. Right. To be an agent, it's like the easiest thing to do today. Hey, all of you, I'm now your agent. I'm going to find you work. Whenever I find you work, you give me 10%. You don't pay me anything unless I get you get you work. Who would say no to that? Yeah. No skin off your back. And the first the first job I get for you is no contract. It's hip-pocketing you. We're going to go find work. We're going to get you a good gig, and you give me 10%. After that, we can talk about contract moving forward. Done. Yeah. Uh, how long should like a demo be for like a certain thing? Because I know in the voice acting industry, you do demos for certain things like radio, commercial demo, animation demo, video game demo, whatever the case might be. Uh, how long should that demo be for certain employers like Warner Brothers or whatever? How long should it be? Like 30 seconds to like a minute? Until it gets boring. Until it gets Really? <laughs> long as hell? <laughs> That's not what I said. I said it can be as long as it's not boring. Okay, so here's, here's an example. So I went with a trailer to a movie that we were trying to pitch mm -hmm. uh, there, to this thing called the American Film Market. It's in San, Santa Monica every November. And I went down for three, four years in a row with different projects trying to get them off the ground. And what I would do is they literally take all of the beds out of the hotel rooms in the Lowe's Hotel in Santa Monica on the beach. They take all the beds out and they turn them into little booths for all these different production companies and, and sales companies throughout the world. And you literally go door to door, you knock on, you say, hey, I got this movie, it's got so-and-so attached, has this budget, and we're ready to start production in six weeks if we have financing. 
that was basically my pitch going in, right? And they're like, okay, well, you have anything we could look at? Yeah, sure. So I'd open up, and I had this five-minute trailer, or it was a teaser. It wasn't really a trailer, but I had this five-minute scene teaser thing cut together. Not a single one of the 12, 14 people I met with made it past 30 seconds. Does that mean it was boring? Probably. <laughs> but they definitely didn't watch all five minutes of it. Right. And so after day two, I recut it into a 30-second like sizzle reel, and that way people watched the entire thing, and the meetings went much better after that. So I would say if you send it out to a dozen people and got no responses, you gotta make it more interesting. Yeah, you got to change yeah. Okay, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Uh, I think I'm done for questions. For now. <laughs> I'll probably email you or something. Please do. Actually, Darren, I have a question. Yes, so please. What advice do you have for, um, uh, like, for either critical listening or critical? So, like the other day, I was watching comedians in cars getting coffee yeah. in April, and uh, and um, Jerry Seinfeld was talking. I can't remember the comedian's name, but. Um, Oh no, Dan was Dana Carvey. They were talking. Oh yeah. And Jerry Seinfeld kind of gave this like, Dana Carvey tossed out this joke, and he said, "What do you think?" You know, and, and Jerry Seinfeld like on the spot, kind of broke it apart and gave like this whole new spin and made it a lot better. And and so and I was I just said, "Wow, that's really amazing." He, he like totally made it so much better. And April said, "Oh yeah, that's why Darren likes the show is because of these like little things he does or these." So I don't know, like, do you have advice for, because we've talked a lot about the business and um, that side of things, but going back to sort of perfecting your craft, like what things have you done to try and like perfect your craft, you know, like building your chain or, or critical listening to music or critical viewing of shows or, you know, things like yeah. that. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, first, I think there's a mindset of never stop learning like you, you will never know everything. You will never be the best because the best is subjective. Jerry Seinfeld is one of the best, but so is Richard Pryor, so is Chris Rock, so is Steve Martin. They're all the best to certain people, but they're not the best to other people. So don't worry about being the best, but keeping in mind that um, there should never be an end to the learning that you're doing, getting better at your craft. The way to technically and like realistically do it is just spend time on it every single day um, you need to be working on your own art your own craft but so to get even more specific like when I started writing screenplays I know I'd never taken a class never learned from a professional or like a teacher I just said well I want to write a screenplay so how do I do that well I downloaded a bunch of screenplays and I read screenplays I read a hundred screenplays in like a month I said, okay, I kind of get what a screenplay looks like, reads like, feels like, sounds like, structure, what it structurally looks like, how it's put together. And then I took um, a music example is an even better one. So when I was playing saxophone in school, um, they would give us a song to transcribe. Who knows what transcription is? Y'all done that in music school? So gave me a Charlie Parker tune or a Cannonball Adderley tune and said, play this exactly the same way a month from now. So every day, I'd go, part of my practice, the two or three hours of practice I did every day, the first 30 minutes was warm-ups, and the second 30 minutes was, okay, let's work on this transcription. So I had a notepad, and I had an old Walkman CD player, because it was pre-iTunes, pre-iPods. 
when I was in school, and said, okay, so I hit play, okay, and I worked it out and played that same phrase over and over again until I had it under my fingers and then I wrote it down. And then I moved on to the next phrase, and the next phrase, and the next phrase, and the next phrase. And three weeks later, I had the tune down to where even, I haven't played the horn in like three years. I brought out my tenor saxophone, and the first thing I did was, because I had it, had it under my fingertips. So transcription, whether it's taking a movie and, and transcribing it, writing down what's happening on screen, or watching a movie while reading the screenplay, whether it's getting a composition for a film score and going through note by note and seeing how it's arranged and how that chord is stacked on itself, why are the oboes doing this while the strings are doing this and vice versa? You know, it's digging into not only the structure of the thing, but actually how it's built, note by note, word by word, stroke by stroke, whatever it is. So I think every creative professional that I know has done something similar in their own craft to, to really dissect the, the masterworks of that thing, whether it's music, whether it's film, whether it's writing, I think you have, and that's, that's not homework excitement, that's just like every single person I've talked to, and myself included, just did that, because they wanted to know. Back when I was like six or seven years old, my parents told me I used to take apart like electronics, like I'd take this Focusrite thing, and I would unscrew it, and I would pull everything apart, and I'd see how it was work, how it worked, because that's just how my mind was built. So I knew how radios and telephones and clocks worked when I was super young because I was just curious. Yeah. And that, I think, has informed the, the decisions I've made as an adult in my career because as a producer, I like to know how a thing is built and how it works and how to put a team together so it works and how to get every piece of the puzzle to where we can come together with a final result of an actual TV show. Like That's fun for me. Um, I think that's just kind of innate in creatives. Like we just want to know how the world works. And a lot of times that leads to an expression and an artistic expression where we go, I've learned something about how the way the world works. So now I want to express that in my own way. Other times it's, we just really love the technical aspects of things. So we get behind the scenes, we get behind the keyboards, we get into the programs because we like knowing how those things work. And we work with the people that are the creative artistic expressionists but we're the people who are pushing the buttons because that's where we have fun and they just want to express <laughs> right did that in come anywhere close to answering the question yeah, i do love that show because i like watching jerry seinfeld talk to other comedians about their craft that's fun for me uh, yes i have a question how long are you going to be here by the way as long as you want me to be okay, i don't cool. i don't have anywhere to be yeah, yeah I, got, I got a i got a good question uh, regarding um like, what are you, because you seem like you've done a lot, but what are you kind of, like, you feel like you still haven't done yet that you really want to start doing or get mm. to? I mean, I, my, my goal for the next couple of years is to get to the point where I'm producing a season of TV and a movie every year. And so the movie is the thing where I've worked on movies. I just haven't produced and written my own. And I, that's, those are the projects I have in development right now. Okay got two movies and a TV show that are like in development, talking with producers, talking with financiers, talking with networks. So those things are in the works, but that's what I want my next 10 years to be is a movie and a TV show every year. That feels like a good workload, feels like a good balance for family time and vacation time and stuff like that. 
but still being able to pay the bills, et cetera, et cetera. What were the majors that you uh, did? I can't see um, The only major I ever really declared was sound recording technology. Yeah, but I was a music fine arts major the whole time. So I've been like, I guess just, I don't know really how to phrase this question. Yeah. So I've been like at the electronic music thing for like a few years, and I know at this point, like I produce some songs, and I, I like them and stuff, and I've made things that sound very good to me, that I can picture like, oh, I can find that on a Spotify playlist. Nice. But what really, the artists that really drive me to make music, that I want to make music similar to, I feel like I'm just years away from like getting to that level not even by a sound just like the composition of arrangement of how like I, I like like to listen to music like on the way here or whatever breaking down like ABC like ABAC however they yeah. get things and structure things and I I don't I feel like I'm light years away from that creative level of thinking to do things. like I can hear it and I'm like oh that's how they did it but I would never have thought to write a song So what's your advice to like getting over, I guess, that type of hurdle, if that makes sense? That makes complete sense, because I wrestle with that a lot. That's the artistic dilemma, right? Never goes away. I mean, you know who Steven Spielberg is. After every single movie, you can find an an interview where somebody talks to him about, what is it like to be you? And he goes, what is it like to be me? Every single time I put a movie out on screen, and it goes out to 4,500 screens, I feel like a fraud. I feel like this is the time that they're going to find out that I have no clue what I'm doing. That they're going to find me out, and, I, and my career's going to be over. He's literally said that dozens of times. Oh Steven Spielberg, arguably the greatest director of our time. It never goes away. So my workaround has been to focus on the craft and not the result of the craft. To focus on the art, not the result of the art. Um, that's really hard to do depending on how left or right brain you are. I'm like 60-40 left or right brain. So I have a little bit, I have more like structural producer brain than I do artistic creative brain, but I have enough to where I still wanna write screenplays and come up with ideas and write blog posts and like be a person who's putting art into the world. I call it lowercase art for me, but I don't think it ever goes away. And if you're pure right brain, like pure creative, that's the, that's, the, that's the stuff in our brains that drives people crazy, and we lose lives over that because they cannot get it to shut up. So what I would urge you, if that's a big hurdle, is to not let it be a hurdle. Just figure out whatever it is for you that's, that allows you to push that thought aside and say, look, uh, there's an incredible book called The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield, which I would recommend. I read it every year. It's one of four books I have like physical copies of everything else I have Kindle version of. But The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Read that book because it will completely outline what that is. He calls it the resistance. And it's, the resistance can be anything from thoughts like that to procrastination to self-doubt to anything. I mean, anything that stands between you and the work is resistance. And so, he lays out a really compelling way of overcoming it, basically by saying you have to overcome it at all costs or else you cannot do this work. And so, you know, the other things I would say is those guys have been at it arguably a lot longer than we have and that those guys listen to each other's music and have the exact same thought. You're no different from any of them. And so 
the more you do the work, the better the work's gonna become. And you're gonna look back on that five years from now and go, man, I can't believe I felt that way. But then again, I still feel that way when it comes to these people and these people. And that, that will never go away. So rather than letting it impede you, I would say, lean into it and go, oh, this is fun. Because I get to get closer and closer every day working. But yeah, the, the worst thing that can happen is letting that feeling, that thought, ever prevent you from putting music out in the world. Other questions? Uh, yeah. Well, what's the best way to reach you if I have any further questions? This is it. Not oh, through the email? Yeah, I'm not giving out my cell phone number to dance. <laughs> but yeah, okay. if you, that goes directly to me. So, and you can reach me on. I, I took all the social media apps off my phone. I'm still there if you want to see stuff, but I don't really engage as much right now. But that email will go straight to me, and okay. cool. I will respond. I respond to every so, email. Um, you, you started your own uh, film production company? Yes. Did you do that to make your own portfolio, or did you do that just to be your own boss? Or like? Yeah, to be my own boss. And you know, in 2008, 2009, not a lot of places were hiring. The economy was kind of in the dump. Right. So we were going out trying to find film work, trying to get on film projects, and it just wasn't coming through Utah, and I didn't want to move to L.A. I had job offers to move to L.A. and New York, but it felt like the wrong time to do it for some reason, and I'm glad I stuck around because like a year after that I met and married, not met, but married my wife. So if I had moved, that wouldn't have happened, and I wouldn't have three awesome boys that I have now. So um, that's why I think I stuck around. But, no, it was really, like, I don't like having a boss. I mean, I kind of have a boss right now. I'm a contractor, but they treat us like employees, which kind of sucks. I don't like having a boss. I like having autonomy and being in charge, and that's how my brain works. So that's the reason, but also it was because we wanted to work on the project we wanted to work on. So that's but still what I'm pursuing right now. I'm asking because yeah. uh, I kind of, like, started my own little production thing. Yeah. But, like, I feel like I need to join, like, an actual established, like, corporate production job to kind of get that experience so I can then move forward with my own production thing. I think there's a ton of benefit to doing that way. Yeah. Because you're going to learn both what to do and what not to do yeah. from those companies, from those employers, yeah. and from the people you work with. Yeah. And that's going to be invaluable. And it's, I think, easier to find that job now than it is 5, 10, 20 years from now. So do that and then jump to your own thing yeah. once you realize, oh, I've got my own set of clientele that can sustain me for a little while while I build it up. You know, your part-time work can then become your full-time work, and that takes six months to scale up to full-time, but, you know, you go from a side hustle that's paying you two or three grand a month to a real thing that's paying you five or six grand a month, you're like, dang, that's a job. Yeah. That's a gig. And then you add another person, and they bring their clientele, and it doubles, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So uh, a lot of what I've read, I guess, of getting music out there uh, online mm -hmm. that's so popular for spreading your music now yeah. is that you have to put time into like marketing yourself well into making other people, like just getting other people to see your music, let alone decide, I'm going to listen to this. So how did you know with film or music, whatever you were doing, when you got to a certain point, this is worth sinking the money and time and effort and like blood, sweat, and tears to push out rather than this is cool, but I need to keep working on the craft. Mm. Um, I never, ever, ever asked that question or thought that question. That's the real answer. Um, the, the question to ask, the, the question that I would recommend you ask is what is it for? 
So is this for people to consume? If so, ship it. Get it out the door. Give yourself a deadline and say, on October 15th, this song is going out the door, whether it's ready or not. Because you could nitpick it to death, and it could be a year later. And I have a screenplay I wrote last September that I wrote in three weeks. And it wasn't good enough to go out, but I sent it off to the producer that I work with, and she loved it. She's like, I want to do this, but it needs a rewrite. I'm like, absolutely. But I didn't have time to do a rewrite, so my old business partner was like, well, let me handle it. I don't know, man. This is kind of one I wrote myself. There's a lot of me in there. I want it to not be taken out. So let me just give it a try. I got it back from him two weeks, three weeks ago, and he barely made any changes because he was so nervous about making changes. I'm just like... We just lost a year because you were working on this. I thought you were rewriting it and all this stuff. But he was too nervous. And that resistance yeah. held him up from getting anywhere. So now I've got it back, and I'm going to crank another draft out in the next month and get it going. Because it's like been a year, man. Um, but yeah, I think that question of what is it for, is it for you to better your craft? Then take the time it, you need to take to better your craft. But if it's for your audience... Why are you holding it back? Same thing with Imagine Dragons. Mm-hmm. Well, they asked that question, whether they knew it or not. What is this new music for? What's well, for the audience? Well, is it for them right now? Is it for, for them a year from now? Why? Well, no, it's for the audience to consume, to have, to listen to. Why, are we, why wait for it? So they made the choice based on what they decided it was for to release it right away without waiting that year that every other band waits for. So if the music is for your audience, it's for them, not for you. So get it out. Um, you know, I have a friend named John Allred who's a, he now lives in LA, in uh, Las Vegas. He gigs there a ton. And for like five years, he just put out a song a month. And every year, every 10 months, he'd take all the songs he just released and put them on iTunes as an album and he'd sell the album. But every month, his audience in their email just got a new song. <laughs> you know, because for him, what he wanted, what his music was for, was for his audience. So anytime he wrote a song, he released it. And then he turned it into an album once he got the best 10 or 12 or 20 or whatever song. So I think there's no right answer. There's no one singular answer for that question of what is it for, but that's for you to ask. And that will help guide the way you release and how you release and where you release. So when you're talking about marketing, what's it for? Is it for exposure? Then release it for free on the biggest platform you can find. If it's for money, okay, figure out how to monetize it the best you can. If it's for your fans, okay, how do you get it to them directly without having to rely on a platform? Can you build an email list? Can you build a website? You know, that question I has dictated my decisions a ton in my life, in my career. Yeah, so is it a viable method to release a song and then re-release it as an album? Absolutely. I mean, every audience is different. And some people say like, oh, that's just the same song that was released before. Yeah. So I should clarify, he released a demo, like Mm -hmm. an acoustic guitar track of a song. And then he would release the album with like the full version. So people were given like the minus tracks or whatever in their emails for free. But he built up an email list of like 85,000 people over five or six years that he owned that audience. He didn't have to go through Facebook. He didn't have to go through YouTube. Did he do that through his own website? Yeah. He 
just said, hey, I released a song a month on my website. Sign up here, and it'll come directly to your email every month. And it was legit. I mean, 85,000 fans? Anyone in this room would kill for that. I'd kill for that. <laughs> Not kill. <laughs> strong word. Um, but yeah, I mean, but it goes back to that question of what is it for? Is it for the audience? Is it to build an audience? Is it to make money? Like, the money to him was secondary. He wanted to make music for a living, which he does. But he gigs on the street. He plays in, you know, uh, event places and stuff like that. He's not touring the nation, but he's making six figures a year in Las Vegas playing music every night. It's what he wants to do. And he has a huge fan base of people that love his music. So yeah, definitely a viable option. Yeah. So, um, the, the question that I'm going to ask now, I guess, is similar. You may have already given me the answer you would give to this, but like, obviously, I get excited when I finish something I like, and I send it off to like a few seen or looked at that before, that quote by our do, do, do you want to show it, It's worth video? pulling up the video because right. if I try to quote it, and you know, I'll, I'll mess it up. And won't Taylor justice. and I were like literally just talking about that. <laughs> but um, again, it goes back to doing the work every day. Your tastes are going to change. You're going to get better and better. You're going to look back on your work from five years ago and go, oh, what were they thinking? But that's the life of being an artist. So it's this one right here, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is my favorite thing. Yeah, do that top one. Minute and a half, two minutes. Nobody uh, tells people who are beginners, and I really wish somebody had told this to me, is that um, obviously the creative work, like, you know, we get into it, and we get into it because we have good taste, but it's like there's a gap that for the first couple of years that you're making stuff, what you're making isn't so good, okay? It's not that great. It's, it's, it's trying to be good, it has ambition to be good, but it's not quite that good. But your taste, the thing that got you into the game, your, your taste is still killer, and your taste is good enough that you can tell that what you're making. It's kind of a disappointment to you, you know what I mean? A lot of people never get past that phase. A lot of people at that point, they quit. And the thing I, I would just like say to you with all my heart is that most everybody I know who does interesting creative work, they went through a phase of years where they had really good taste, they could tell what they were making wasn't as good as they wanted it to be. They knew it felt short. It didn't have the special thing that we wanted to have. And the thing I would say to you is everybody goes through that. And for you to go through it, if you're going through it right now, if you're just getting out of that phase, you got to know it's totally normal. And the most important possible thing you can do is do a lot of work. Do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week or every month you know you're going to finish one story. Because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you're actually going to ca catch up and close that gap. And your, the work you're making will be as good as your ambitions. In my case, like I, I took longer to figure out 
how to do this than anybody I've ever met. <laughs> it takes a while. It's going to take you a while. It's normal to take a while, and you just have to fight your way through that. Okay? Yeah, that's the answer, right? Uh, put yourself on a deadline, whether it's a story or a song or a composition or an article or whatever it is you're creating. That's it. I mean, it's, it's a hard answer because for every single person in the room, the actual tactical way of doing that day-to-day -day is different. You might work in a completely different way than me, than him, than her, than everyone in this room. It's going to be different. You might do it late at night. I do it super early in the morning. You might do it on your lunch break. You might do four-hour blocks. I might do an hour block. Like the actual way you compose the work, you might use Pro Tools. I might use Logic. There's, there's no way for me to walk you through day-to-day -day how to make that happen, but the answer is turning to the work and focusing on the work, which is why I think that's such a massive principle for us because... That resistance is real and it's strong and it will stop us dead in our tracks. Actually, and, can I share a quick anecdote yeah. along those lines too? So like uh, when, when I was an undergrad, I won this, this competition for, for music composition. And, uh, and so they, there was five of us that were the competition winners and they flew all of us out to, um, to Nebraska. <laughs> Exotic. But the, the, the symphony, the Omaha symphony orchestra what they did is for their concert um, series that year they did a concert of like all of our works and I remember like my stuff was a little bit like kind of different than everyone else's stuff um, it was just kind of more out there and everyone else's was much more conservative and kind of I don't know I guess appealed to a, a broader audience so, so I remember the whole time as we're going through there's like a whole week before we're going through workshops and uh, and the orchestra is running through the stuff and they're having a no problem with everyone else's stuff except for my piece they were totally <laughs> struggling with and I remember just the whole time thinking like this my, this my piece sucks like my music is horrible uh, you know like no one's gonna like it you know like they're, they're gonna come to the concert and they're gonna come across my thing and and I was really sort of kind of getting down on myself and then I remember the night of the concert it was completely the opposite like the, the orchestra did an amazing job they really nailed it and then I had like not only like quite a few people afterwards like you wrote that one piece, but the the coolest part was the guy who funded the whole thing. He like specifically sought me out, and he's like, "It was like my favorite piece tonight." He's like, you know, he's like, "It was weird, but I loved it." You know, and it was just like it was kind of like exactly what he wanted, and so it was just for me. It was like, wow, like sometimes it's okay to be just balls to the wall, yeah, you know, just kind of go out there and 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 like you know things will happen. They'll make you feel like oh, it sucks, but then you can be pleasantly surprised, you know. But yeah. Yeah, I, the last thing I'd add to that is that the thing that makes the difference between an amateur and a professional is the work. The professional finishes, the professional delivers, they ship it out, they get it to where it's intended, they do the work. An amateur talks about doing the work. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And that's what sets people apart, you know, especially like I started out talking about where you're going right after college, right? How do you get that first job? Well... There's a difference between someone who's coming out of school with a professional mindset of someone who's already done the work to get to that point to earn that job and someone who's coming out of it as an amateur saying, well, I took three classes and I kind of know what a compressor does. <laughs> Sorry, I can't hire you. You don't know what a compressor does. <laughs> like, that's 101. 
Um, so doing the work every single day, being responsible for to yourself and having internal reasons for why you want to care enough to do the work. Oh, I got a question. So as like, you know, someone that hires people, um, you're looking for someone who can like, you know, get, get skip brass tags and just go and show me what you got, right? Like that's what you're kind of looking for. Like if someone's trying to audition for something that you want, you kind of just want to see if they can just like, just like don't tell me the introduction, just show me the work and show me what you got. Is that kind of what you're going for? Um, yeah, that's pretty fair. I'd say I, I value things like work ethic. I value integrity. I value taste. Um, and so depending on who it is, you know, it may be a different level of each one of those things or a different mixture, but, you know, I definitely would take somebody with, um, you know, some flexibility, some creativity, some desire to, some, um, curiosity. That's another thing I value. Like I'll take someone who's curious and has really good work ethic over the best technician who's set in their ways and has no curiosity mm, right because I can mold I can teach somebody in a week how to use Final Cut wow. it's not hard like <laughs> if they know how to edit if they've learned how to edit but they've only ever edited in Premiere I can teach someone who's an editor how to use Final Cut in a week to where they're charging $100 an hour and working full time yeah. the teaching them how to use the program is not the hard part but I'll take that mindset of curiosity work ethic integrity and their taste over somebody who's like the best technician, who's a pain in the ass, a jerk, smells all the time, and doesn't want to learn new things. Yeah. So that's what I value. Um, I can't say that's, I, I can definitely say it's not the same for everybody in the industry, but that's what I value. And I think my experience has shown me that those things are more valuable than being stuck in your ways and being a jerk and <laughs> being right all the time. Well, any other questions, email me, hit me up online. I love answering questions, so I read and respond to every email. This has been a ton of fun. Thanks for your time and attention. And thanks, guys. Good awesome. luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you.